Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm back with Dr. Jillian Isaac to do an ACRAC episode. But before we do, I would like to acknowledge that we are living in a profoundly difficult time with what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis. And of course, that is not an isolated incident. It is bringing to light or bringing to many people's attention who may not have paid attention to it before, a lot of the inequities and the real tragedies that have happened in our society due to racism and police brutality. And I think it's really important that we all take a moment to acknowledge and recognize the horror of what happened to George Floyd and many others. And I'd like to share with you uh, some thoughts that I shared with my residents Uh, because I think it's important that I share them here as well and let all of you hear my thoughts on this, as I'm sure you are struggling with and having similar thoughts. I have been struggling to figure out how to communicate about this for days, unable to adequately express my own feelings of sadness and anger at what happened to George Floyd and the sickness it represents in our society, and unsure of how best to support you as I'm sure you struggle with similar feelings. What happened is a tragedy, not only for Mr. Floyd and his family, but for all those who are victims of similar treatment or who live in fear of it happening to them at any time. As a straight white man, I acknowledge the privilege that I was born with to not have to live with this fear day in and day out. I am thankful to my wife and friends and colleagues of color for helping me understand at least a little what it is like to not have that privilege. If you are struggling with your own feelings about this or your own experiences with it, please reach out for support wherever you are at your institution or any support that you can have access to or that would help you. It's important that we stick together and support each other at a difficult time like this. When I am overcome with feelings of sadness at the fact that human beings can treat each other this way, I find some solace and hope in knowing that there is also incredible wonder, caring, and joy in the world. I remember times when I have seen my residents go above and beyond to help a patient or a colleague, and it reassures me that there is much to be cherished in our humanity. Thank you for providing that hope and for being the people that you are. 
While I know that is true of my residents, I also feel strongly it must be true of so many of you out there listening, and I hope that you know that, and I hope you have people telling you that. I hope we can all join together in sharing these thoughts and in trying to make a difference moving forward. I especially hope that other straight white men like me, born with incredible privilege that we did not earn, can acknowledge that privilege and do everything we can to try to help those who, by no fault of their own, were not born with that privilege. While I will not leave nine minutes of silence here on tape, let us all at least take a moment of silence for George Floyd, starting now. Thank you for joining me in that moment and those thoughts. Thank you for all that you will do, and I know many of you will, to try to take action and make change. Black lives matter. And while, of course, all lives matter, we have to acknowledge that our country has not treated all lives equally, not since long before its inception as a country. And it is important, it is essential, that we stand up now and do everything we can, everything in our power, especially those of us with privilege, to fight for and advocate for recognition that black lives matter just as much as white lives. It's difficult to move on at a time like this and get back to business as usual, but we do want to continue the learning that we all must do so that we can provide the best care of our patients that is possible. And so let's move on with the episode, which will be Another one of our key word episodes where we will focus on two American Board of Anesthesiology key words. We have two today, as always, uh, and it's maybe the B day. They both start with B, so we're doing barbiturates and beer blocks. And so we'll start with barbiturates. And uh, Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Okay, yeah, we're starting with barbiturates, and this was kind of on my mind in the time of COVID. It's interesting and Four months ago, I think we we're all talking about the opioid crisis and talking about pain management away from opioid. But now we're talking about drug shortages and how we're short on propofol and we're short on fentanyl and sedation drugs. So I wonder if we're going to see barbiturates come back and thiopenzil come back. Have you seen it in the ICU kind of make a comeback or not yet? No, we haven't used it yet. We still occasionally talk about barbiturates for yeah. things like alcohol withdrawal. And there has been some talk, as you mentioned, of yeah. if we see enough shortage of things like fentanyl um, and you don't really want patients on long-term high-dose propofol, would we bring back uh, barbiturates? Right. So I wouldn't be surprised, as you said, if, if this does get, start getting asked in right. the, in the yeah. era of covid well, they're still asking it on the test, but we haven't really used it clinically in about 10 years, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see the drug come back and then see more questions about it. But exactly. So if you look at the um, content outline for the basic and the advanced exam, so for the basic exam, this is listed under pharmacology and then barbiturates. And they want you to know the same information for every drug, whether it's propofol, fentanyl, benzodiazepines, it's the same list, but they want you to know. They want you to know mechanism of action pharmacokinetics and dynamics, metabolism and excretion, 
and then effect on organ systems. So circulation, uh, effect on the pulmonary system, on the CNS system, and then side effects and toxicity. And if there are any like contraindications to the drug, so indications, contraindications. And then for the advanced exam, it's also under pharmacology, but they want you to know um, the CNS drugs for non-anesthetic uses. So barbiturates uses anticonvulsants and then for a therapeutic barbiturate coma. Now, I'm going to be honest and say I haven't worked in an ICU since residency, which was a long time ago, so I don't even know if we're doing barbiturate comas anymore, but they're still asking questions about it. So, yeah, I know. have never used never. one for that purpose, yeah. Um, yeah. and I don't think there's any advantage to yeah. a barbiturate for, for putting someone into a quote-unquote medically-induced coma above and beyond propofol. Um, and so I think it's rare, but yeah. I shouldn't say it's never done. And, and actually right. it's very, I don't work in the neurocritical care unit. Right. It's possible maybe in the NCCU. Yeah. So, but they're still asking about it. So if you want to see what's actually on the test apart from what the ABA wants you to know, so they're testing mostly basic topics. So pharmacokinetics is a big one, 2013, 16, 18, um, termination of action in 2011. Uh, and then the relationship of cerebral metabolic, What's DMR2? I'm having a moment. Cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption um, and cerebral blood flow and intracranial pressure, that relationship. And then for the advanced topics, they are still asking about like barbiturate coma. That was asked in 2008, 2011, 2012. Um, So as a brief overview, so thiopental is actually one of the earliest IV anesthetics used. It was discovered in the 30s and was first used on human patients in 1934. So this is really, truly one of our very first like IV anesthetic agents. And it was used up until, I mean, I was using it as a resident. I don't know if you ever used it, but in OB, this was when I was in fellowship. So I finished residency in 09. So in 09, this was still our go-to induction drug in OB. Um, So I actually had a lot of use of it. But in 2011, they actually stopped production of thiopental in the U.S. So that's probably why the drug has gone away. We're not really using it at all because they're not making it in the U.S. Um, There are two major classes. There's oxybarbiturates and thiobarbiturates. So as you can probably assume, thiopental is a thiobarbiturate. And the other barbiturate that we commonly use is methohexatol. And typically, we use that in ECT. And I know that that's still very commonly used in ECT. I haven't done ECT in a while, but I'm pretty sure that's still in the regimen for ECT. Yeah, and that's uh, electroconvulsive and therapy, right? Which is right, done often right. for um, for uh, refractory depression. Right. So those are the two barbiturates that we use in clinical practice. So the first key point is pharmacokinetics. Uh, thiopental is a, they're both thiopental and methohexyl, all barbiturates. They're GABA receptor agonists. And similar to other IV agents, when you give a bolus, it goes to the CNS, it has its effect, and then you get this rapid redistribution to the highly perfused compartments. And that accounts for the rapid termination of drug action after a single induction dose. However, after that, it kind of goes to every other compartment, and then it's slowly metabolized by the liver. It has a very long half-life. It's a 12-hour for thiopental elimination half-life, and that clearance rate is actually 10 times longer than the propofol, which is probably one of the bigger reasons why we don't use it. And then it also has a really, as you can imagine, a long, long contact-sensitive half-time. So if someone's on an infusion and you stop it, it's going to stick around for a lot longer than like propofol ever would. Um, Methohexadol actually has an elimination half-life of only four hours because it's more efficiently extracted from the liver than thiopental is. So if you're comparing the two. Yeah. yeah and I would just emphasize what you said there, which is that um, a long elimination half-life, in other words, to be eliminated from the body, but not at least in a single dose, a long effect half-life. Right. So 
it, the effect will go away very quickly from a single dose of thiopental, but it won't be out of the body. Right. Um, but the more and more you give, the more it goes to the other compartments and the more you have this reservoir and the longer it will take to go away and the longer it'll take for someone to wake up. Um, which happens with propofol too, right? You have someone on propofol infusion all day. It takes a lot longer for them to wake up than after a one-time bolus. Okay, so these are the type of questions that you're going to see about pharmacokinetics. So awakening after a single dose of thiopental is caused by redistribution from the brain, primarily to which of the following sites? A, fat, B, heart, C, liver, D, lung, E, skeletal muscle. So, you know, the way I would approach this question is to say, it's clearly not B, C, or D. Those just aren't, right. there's not enough of, the, of that, right? There's not enough. Right. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. <laughs> tissue, smart, right. um, for that to be the main thing. So right. you could, you could easily, I think, get down to either A or E. And then right. if you think about it, you, you had mentioned, and if you remember, it's really going to be well perfused, the best right. perfused. And your muscle is, is probably a little better perfused than your fat. So you probably are going to go with muscle here. Yeah. Um, though I could exactly. see people being thrown off and thinking fat because thinking like, oh, don't things kind of, you know, get stored in a reservoir in the fat tissue, right. um, especially opiates, but in this case, um, skeletal muscle. Yeah. So it will eventually. So you give the bolus, it goes to the brain, it has its effect, it's quickly washed away to the highly vascular compartments like skeletal muscle, but then it will get into the fat and other organs, and then it will slowly get um, metabolized by the liver over time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the correct answer is skeletal muscles. Uh, so the next question, in a 35-year-old patient, which of the following is associated with an increased duration of clinical narcosis following infusion of a total dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram thiopental over three hours? A, alcoholism and remission, B, asthma, C, fever, D, obesity, and E, use of appetite suppressants. Yeah, so a lot of kind of strange, like this appetite suppressant thing, right? Some strange distractors there. But I think whenever you think of an infusion leading to a longer duration of action, you think about obesity as a major risk factor for that. So there's no difference between thiopental and propofol, for example, in that that case. Or sevoflurane or isoflurane, yeah. Exactly. So it is obesity. And I think when they say alcoholism and remission, they want you to think that the liver is okay. Yeah. yeah, because if the liver was bad, then it would take even longer. But I think what they're trying to get out there is that the liver is functional. Right. They, all, they may also be getting at if you were acutely intoxicated or if you had right. lo- you know, chronic, current chronic alcohol use, which might um, provide okay. some resistance. Right. So they may be trying to get at alcoholism, but it's no longer, you're not drinking it. Yeah, anymore. we're not worried about it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then they're going to ask you comparison questions between thiopental and methohexital. So here's an example of that. Compared with thiopental, methohexital is characterized by A, better absorption after rectal administration, B, greater protein binding, C, greater hepatic clearance, D, larger volume of distribution, E, more complete biotransformation. And as you had said in your kind of summary up front, uh, one of the reasons methohexital has a a more rapid elimination half-life is because it has greater hepatic clearance. So we kind of know that um, as well. And I don't think, this is just the type of question you just kind of have to know. I don't think you could intuit that answer. You'd have to just know that difference. But again, they're an easy comparison and that's why they like to ask that question because it's a very definitive answer. All right. Uh, The next type of question is about duration of action again. So the duration of action of an induction dose of thiopental is determined primarily by its A, rate of elimination, B, rate of metabolism, C, redistribution from brain to fat, D, redistribution from brain to muscle, E, hepatic extraction. 
And as we discussed, Again, it's yeah. from brain to muscle. Right. And sometimes I'll throw very similar questions in just to kind of drive that point in, because I think that's a very common question that you're going to see. All right. Next type of question. Each of the following affects the induction dose of thiopental except A, acute ethanol intoxication, B, chronic use of barbiturates, C, intravascular volume, D, rate of hepatic extraction of thiopental, E, serum albumin concentration. And I think this is actually a neat question because it gets at a lot of different things. So just like any question about kind of, you know, MAC, what reduces MAC, for example. So acute ethanol intoxication is going to obviously make you, I think of it as, well, you're sleepier already because you're drunk. And so that is going to reduce the dose you need. Uh, Chronic use of anything, anything like barbiturates or or alcohol would do the opposite. Right. Uh, Right. Intervascular volume um, is, uh, so they're asking each of the following affects the induction dose of thiopental except, right? So intervascular volume will affect your uh, amount. Would you said this up front that one of the, one of the factors that matters, and you could just think of that as dilution. It's got to get into the blood. So it's going to be diluted the more blood there is. And it's not unique to thiopental. It would be the same for any IV induction agent. Right. And then serum albumin concentration. Uh, in general, even if you're not sure, it's good to think about, uh, it's good to just assume that albumin concentration will affect drugs because they yeah. tend to bind to the proteins. Right. And that leaves D. And the rate of hepatic extraction of thiopental, again, as you said, that has to do with the elimination, but that's a long elimination half-life. So the right. induction dose is not affected by that. Exactly. And because I do OB, I had to throw in an OB question here. And because we used it for so long, I think we were the last holdouts with thiopental and OB. So an OB question. Which of the following statements about thiopental is true? A, rapid uptake into maternal tissues limits its transfer to the fetus. B, its short duration of action is due to its extensive binding to plasma proteins. C, accumulation in fat leads to acute tolerance. D, alkalinity of solution causes respiratory depression. E, uptake into brain is slowed by respiratory acidosis. Right. And you kind of gave this away by talking about the OB part, but yes. So (laughs) rapid uptake into maternal tissues limits its transfer to the fetus. Um, And again, even if you weren't sure about placental transfer, we we talked about how it is really rapidly taken up by the muscle right at first. And so, um, you know, you assume that uh, that might limit its transfer. Right. And it's the same with propofol. It's the same idea is that the rapid redistribution is going to limit the transfer to the fetus. Um, And then the other one, so it's interesting, it actually is a very alkaline solution. If you put it in an acidic solution, the thiopental, it will precipitate out. Um, So maybe they throw that in there if someone remembered about something about alkalinity, but uh, it actually does better in an alkaline solution than in an acidic one. Uh, so last one in this category, a healthy but obese 110 kilogram woman is scheduled for gastric stapling compared with that required at her ideal weight. The dose of thiopental required for anesthetic induction would likely be increased because of changes in a blood volume, B muscle mass, C circulation time, D body fat, E metabolic rate. Yeah. And this is a little tricky too, but what they're getting at here is that an induction dose all your, all, the only thing that matters is it goes into the blood, then it goes to the brain. After that, you're talking about how long it comes off. But for, right. co- for the effect coming on, all the only factors are those, those two, right? So right. it's got to be blood volume yep. because muscle mass has to do with how, where it'll be distributed after it takes effect. Right. But again, that has nothing to do with it initially taking effect and uh, similarly with the others. Yeah, exactly. So it's blood volume. All right. So key point two is clinical uses and side effects, which kind of 
bleeds a little bit into key point three, which is pharmacodynamics, but this made a little bit more sense, I think, in terms of uh, the flow of this podcast. So key point two is uh, how we use it and side effects of it. So we use this for induction. Well, not really anymore, but you can use it for induction of general anesthesia. And like we said above, methohexadol is commonly used for uh, ECT procedures. Um, and then diopental, again, it can be used for barbiturate coma, but I don't think we really do that commonly anymore. So if you are using a barbiturate for neuroprotection, it's generally considered more effective for focal and incomplete ischemia rather than global ischemia. And if you're going to have a complication with thiopental, it's actually a relatively safe drug. But if you had an intraarterial injection, that can lead to tissue necrosis. And then there is one big patient population where thiopental is contraindicated. And do you remember what that is? I had no idea. So I do remember that in yeah. general, porphyria is oh, one of those strange diseases where um, yeah. the barbiturates yeah. are contraindicated. Yeah. And I couldn't find a question of like when I was looking for questions, but I swear I've seen questions about that before. And you see these random questions about acute intermittent porphyria. So this is one of the drugs that is contraindicated in porphyria. Okay. So the type of questions you're going to see regarding clinical uses and Side effects. So a 40-year-old patient has pain following injection of 8 ml of thiopental, 2.5% through a right radial artery catheter. His hand remains pink. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? A, injection of lidocaine through the catheter. B, injection of nitroglycerin through the catheter. C, injection of, I can't say the word, papaverine. How'd I do? Through the Papaverin, catheter. I think. There yeah. you go. Through the catheter. D, right stellate ganglion block. And E, no intervention. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is potentially tricky because they're giving you things that if you had an, a tissue extravasation of a substance, you might think about doing. But in the artery, you got to think about what happens. You inject this into the artery and it's not there anymore, right? It's, it's going to get yeah, shot down exactly. to the end, uh, the end arterioles. Um, and so I don't think there's really much you can do yeah. for that as you, you watch. And if obviously yeah. if there's tissue necrosis, then you can, right. you know, support yeah. that. But in this case, the hand is pink. I think you just leave it right. alone. No intervention. Yeah. Right. It's different than if you had extravasation through a vein, cause then it's like physically there and you can do something, but here in an arterial line, now there's not much you can do. So no intervention is correct. All right. Which of the following statements concerning barbiturate protection from cerebral ischemia is true? A, it may be achieved with dosages low enough to avoid cardiovascular effects. B, it is linearly dose-related. C, it improves neurologic outcome following cardiac arrest. D, it is most useful in patients with focal ischemia. E, it is unrelated to EEG activity. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, it is most useful for focal ischemia. Just quickly, obviously, it will have, at the dosage you would need, it would definitely have cardiovascular effects. Yeah. Um, it is uh, linearly, uh, it is not linear right. uh, in no. its effects. Um, it uh, is not, has not been shown to improve outcomes following cardiac arrest. Um, and it is. Uh, it does change what, EEG. It actually can cause birth suppression and isoelectric EEG. So it. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a confusing answer only because I'm not sure it how is. it applies to what they're saying. But yes, it I can. I think it's a distractor. Okay. Yeah, just yeah. one of those distractory answers. Okay. So which of the following would be most likely to increase the duration of seizures during electroconvulsive therapy using a barbiturate and succinylcholine for general anesthesia? A, administration of atropine prior therapy. B, changing to a benzodiazepine for induction. D, changing to atominate for induction. D, adding phenytoin to preoperative medications. E, decreasing the dose of barbiturate use for induction. Yeah, and that's that's funny. <laughs> Bless you. 
excuse me, um, because, um, a lot of those are the exact opposite, right? So obviously adding phenytoin an anti-seizure medicine is not going to increase the duration of your seizure. Um, but barbiturates are also an anti-seizure medication. So reducing that dose makes sense. Yeah, and there is some data that says that really it is they are considered anticonvulsants, but at small doses they actually may have some proconvulsant properties. So by decreasing the dose, you actually do two things. You decrease the coma effect, the CNS effect, but then you also might have this proconvulsant property of the drug. Which leads us into key point three, which is the pharmacodynamics and the effect on organ systems. And I think these are also really common questions that you see, especially how it affects the CNS. So it is a CNS depressant. It is an anticonvulsant, although at smaller doses, it can have proconvulsant properties. Uh, Thyropendal is also neuroprotective. They decrease CMRO2, CBF, and ICP. You can see EEG burst suppression. And historically, so if you look at older questions, barbiturate-induced brain relaxation has been utilized as a protective strategy during neurosurgery, especially after head trauma. So older questions, you'll see a lot of those, and you'll see them, I'll have some coming up. Um, cardiovascular, it decreases uh, mean arterial pressure, venous tone, and cardiac output, and you get a dose-dependent respiratory depression, but no bronchodilation. So those are the organ system effects. So here are some yeah. questions that you might And Jillian, see. I just want to yeah. um, just, uh, I want to um, say what some of those abbreviations are. So CMRO2, oh, we already said, the cerebral metabolic rate of O2 consumption. CBF is cerebral blood flow, ICP, intracranial pressure. So in case right. folks were wondering about that. And they decrease, like, decreases all three. So a middle-aged 70-kilogram man with a brain tumor is scheduled for an elective craniotomy. Preoperatively, he is alert, but papilledema is present. Anesthesia is induced with thiopental 300 milligrams and succinylcholine 100 milligrams, followed by tracheal intubation. Immediately following intubation, vigorous bucking occurs. The best immediate management would be to A, administer succinylcholine 100 milligrams IV, B, administer fentanyl 500 micrograms IV, C, hyperventilate with isoforine 2%. D, administer thiopensil 400 milligrams IV. E, hyperventilate and administer lidocaine 1 milligram per kilogram IV. I think that's a tricky question. You got to wonder why he's bucking when he's had um, succinylcholine. Maybe it took them a little while to get that in. Um, but it doesn't really, you, in general, you're not going to want to give another dose of paralytic in the setting of increased ice, uh, or at least of succinylcholine in the setting of increased ICP, you might question why they decided to give succinylcholine in the first place. Um, <laughs> so I think you might you, you not go for that one. Um, so, uh, you know, you, your options would be they're giving you an, an uh, possibility of fentanyl, 500 um, mics, uh, hyperventilating. With ISO or thiopensil right. or blood Right. And I think that they're trying to get, I actually think this is a, a difficult question because a lot of those things maybe are things people would consider doing. Um, but what I think they're getting at is you want to do something that will be really, really fast yeah, because in someone exactly. with elevated ICP, right. Right. the fact that they're bucking is not good. Right. And so right. you could hyperventilate with isoflurane, yeah. but that's going to take well, a while. It's going to take a while. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Fentanyl, so, similarly, fentanyl is right. going to take a few minutes. Thiopental is very rapidly active. Right. And you could 
in my head, I kind of just substituted propofol with thiopental and that's what you would do, right? Someone, you want them to go get deeper immediately. You're going to do an IV agent with really fast onset of action. And so I think thiopental makes the most sense. Now it's interesting here at Hopkins, we have our syringes of succinylcholine or hundred milligrams. So we routinely just use hundred milligrams of sucks for induction. But when I was in residency, we actually did the two to three milligram per kilogram dose. So for me, hundred mil- milligrams is very low for a 70 kilogram man. And if I'm actually working like solo or with residents, I actually routinely give way more than the hundred. I actually do the two to three milligrams. Per so kilogram. I totally so agree with you. It. Yeah. I, I do the same thing. I do have, you? Okay. I, thought I was the absolutely other one. <laughs> think that even though, you know, if you look, People, you know, you'll see published that the dose of succinylcholine is one to 1.5 mg per kg. But I find for a lot of patients that is not sufficient. And there's essentially no downside in giving two to three mg per kg. So I just do it. So that's why I, that's what I was thinking. Cause you had said, well, why do they use sex in the first place? But I don't know. There it is. Okay. So next question, a 50 year old man is scheduled to undergo emergency craniotomy for evacuation of an epidural hematoma. His Glasgow coma scale score is six heart rate is 54 and blood pressure is 190 over 110 millimeters of mercury. The most appropriate initial management is administration of which of the following agents, a atropine, B mannitol, C Yeah, and I think what they're getting at there is you don't want his um, blood pressure quite that high. And so uh, he has an epidural hematoma. Uh, You do want to... Pushing triad, so... He right. looks like he's got right, elevated ICP, right? So Right, right. He's looking like elevated ICP, and you want to be able to perfuse the brain without... Um, uh, without increasing the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption. So what they're getting at is a barbiturate. They could have also given you, if they'd given you propofol, that would have also been a correct answer. But you want to give something that will decrease ICP pretty quickly by both lowering CMRO2 and lowering um, the, uh, and, and not lowering a cerebral um, oxygen delivery too much. So you, what you do need to be careful of with either thiopental or propofol, of course, is if you drop the systemic pressure too much, I mean, you don't want it necessarily that high, but if you drop it too much, then you may not perfuse the brain. So you need to give it. So thiopental would be the answer given these choices, but you want to be careful not to drop the pressure too much. Right. And I think in this day and age, we would probably just go for propofol. All right. So the next two questions are actually very similar. So the first one is a 70 kilogram, 46 year old man is undergoing clipping of a cerebral aneurysm with nitrous oxide, opioid relaxant anesthesia. He is otherwise healthy. As the surgeons are about to enter the dura, the brain is noted to be tense and bulging. Heart rate is 100 and mean arterial pressure is 90. PaO2 is 120 millimeters of mercury. PaCO2 is 23 millimeters of mercury and pH is 7.5. Which of the following should be done immediately? A, hyperventilation to a PaCO2 of 15 to 20. B, administration of furosemide 20 milligrams IV. C, administration of mannitol 0.5 gram per kilogram. D, administration of thiopental 250 milligrams in increments. E, addition of halothane 1% to deepen anesthesia. That's how you know it's an old question. We got halothane here. <laughs> That's right. And this is similar to what we were just saying, that you right. need something fast. He's got yeah. elevated ICP. You need to lower it quickly. But... 
the reason they're so thiopental is going to be the right answer, but the reason they're saying in increments is because you also don't want to drop his pressure too abruptly. Right, exactly. And so the next question is very similar. Uh, during a crany for a supertentorial tumor, a 28-year-old man receives isofluorine and nitrous oxide and oxygen. Ventilation is controlled to maintain PCO2 at 25. Nasopharyngeal temperature is 35.8. While the dura matter is open, the surgeon complains that the brain is bulging. The most appropriate management at this time is to A, decrease isofluorine concentration, B, hyperventilate further, C, discontinue nitrous oxide, D, administer thiopental, E, administer additional muscle relaxants. So very similar theme. Yep, we don't need same to go thing. through it. Yeah, yep. exactly. All right. So the last one in this category, depression of cerebral oxygen requirements below the level required to create an isoelectric EEG can be achieved by A, administration of isofluorine, B, administration of nemotipine, C, barbiturate coma, D, hyperventilation, E, hypothermia. Yeah, I'm not. That question is phrased strangely. Depression of cerebral it oxygen is. requirements below the level required to create an isoelectric EEG. Um, so basically, what it's saying is you get to an IC, an isoelectric EEG, and that will decrease your cerebral oxygen requirement. But how can you get even below that mm, for your cerebral gotcha, oxygen requirement? Gotcha. Yeah. So what they're getting at then is they're giving you options like isofluorine, which would potentially bring you closer to an iso, isoelectric EEG, but you're already there. Right. Exactly. Same with barbiturate coma. Right. You're so what's there. left would be right. the hypothermia. Hypothermia, right. So just for to review barbiturates, if you're going to see questions about this, I would guess that the most likely questions are going to be about pharmacokinetics and then it affect, its effects on organ systems, especially the CNS. And you might now see some clinical uses, like uh, especially for ECT. But with uh, propofol being in such shortage, I wonder if we're going to see it being A, used more and B, tested more. So we'll see. We will see. All right. Awesome. Let's move on to the beer block. Yeah. Um, What do we want to cover here? So it's funny. I was, you know, I just got my new bearish, which is the eighth edition of bearish now. And I was looking through it and uh, they have thiopental in the historic section. And then I saw the beer block and I was like, you know what, let's do that. So it's also called the intravenous regional anesthesia block, IVRA, uh, sometimes is abbreviated. It is on the ABA basic uh, content under basic regional anesthesia, IV regional. They want you to know about the mechanism, so basically how you do it, mechanism action, agents used, indications, contraindications, techniques, and complications. As for what's on the test, they're most likely to ask about mechanism of action, so like how do you do it, how does it work. That was tested in 2011 and 2014. Um, You might see questions about complications. That was tested in 2015, and then limitations to the block, and that was tested in 2019. So I will just say for the record that I have done two of these, and I think I am probably two more than most people (laughs) That's fine. I've also I've also done two exactly. Well, there two. you go. Yeah, two, and they were both in residency. I haven't done one since. I don't think I will bring it back, but um, they still ask about it. And I think there's a lot of they keep these questions around. Not so much that we do the block, but there are a lot of really interesting questions about local anesthetics, and it's a really great way to ask about local anesthetic toxicity and talk about um, some of the drugs that you use. So I think that's why they're going to keep these questions around. Not that we do the block, but there are a lot of interesting questions that go along with it. So just historically, a beer block, also known as intravenous regional anesthesia, IVRA, it was invented by August Beer in 1908. It's most commonly used for short-duration procedure of the upper extremity distal to the elbow. So those surgeries really are mostly carpal tunnel release, the Dupuytren contraction release, neuroma excision, fracture reduction, and any other surgery that can be performed reliably in less than one hour. And I kind of chuckled when I wrote that because... 
there are very few surgeries that can be performed reliably in less than an hour, but yep. that's about what you have. Um, so how to perform this um, and the mechanism. And these are, again, the most questions are going to be in this category. So what you do is you put a small IV as distal as possible. So usually like in the back of the hand. And if you could see me, I'm actually like doing the motion. <laughs> so you put a small IV in and then you elevate the arm and exsanguinate it with an SVAR, like a bandage. You just want to get all the blood out. And then you put a tourniquet on proximal. So kind of just where you normally put a blood pressure cuff, you put a tourniquet on kind of proximal to the elbow there. Um, so you apply that to the upper extremity and then you inflate it ideally to 50 to hundred milligrams of mercury above the patient's systolic blood pressure, but mostly around 250 is the number where you do it to. Um, and then you give lidocaine, usually 15 to 20 ml of 2% through the IV catheter that's in the hand. And then you remove the cath. So you're basically just numbing the whole arm and you just let it sit there until the whole arm goes down. So the mechanism of action is felt to be via diffusion of the local anesthetic extravascularly to block the distal peripheral branches of the nerves. So that's different um, from like a supraclavicular block where you're actually blocking the, what is it, the roots? Oh my gosh. Roots? Yeah, but you're blocking you're well, whatever, one? whichever yeah, part of the right. brachial plexus you're <laughs> exactly. blocking up proximally yeah, right, in the brachial plexus. Right. And in this, you're actually blocking the distal peripheral nerve branches. So that's the biggest difference between the two blocks. Um, so the questions you're going to see about this are actually a lot about the timing of it. Like how safely can you release the tourniquet? Uh, how long um, does the tourniquet have to be on? I mean, obviously you have this arm now full of local anesthetic. Uh, so those are the really the biggest questions and they still ask about those. So here's, here's one. So surgery is canceled 10 minutes after initiation of intravenous regional anesthesia with 50-50 milliliters of lidocaine, 0.5%. To terminate anesthesia safely, what is the most appropriate timing for deflating the tourniquet? So A, immediately if benzodiazepines have been administered. B, immediately after intravenous administration of ephedrine, 10 milligrams. C, immediately followed by repeated reinflation and deflation. D, in no less than 20 minutes after initial injection. E, in no less than 45 minutes after initial injection. And this is kind of one of those things you just have to know. You probably could get rid of A, B, and C because they're all talking about immediately in different ways. Like trying to prevent local anesthetic toxicity, right? right? That's never a good idea, yeah. Exactly. But in general, uh, I mean, you either know or you don't that 20 minutes is thought to be yeah. the amount. So I start this question because I, I see this question over and over. It's like a question that's asked every year is how long do you have to keep the tourniquet on before you can safely release it? And the answer is 20 minutes. And they say actually after 20 minutes you can release it, but they do want you to release it and then reinflate and release and reinflate. So the idea is that you kind of have any like slow pulses of local into the body, into the bloodstream rather than a big bolus. After 45 minutes, you can safely just release the tourniquet and not have to worry about that. Um, but 20 minutes is the answer. So really remember that because if you're going to get a question, my guess is that's going to be the one you're going to get. Okay. Uh, the primary determinant of the duration of an IV regional block sufficient to provide surgical anesthesia of an upper extremity is A, duration of tourniquet inflation, B, capacitance of the venous system of the extremity, C, local anesthetic agent injected, D, volume of anesthetic solution injected, E, method of exsanguinating the arm. And I think what they're getting at here is that you're not numbing up the part of the arm under the tourniquet. So, after, over time, that's going to cause pain that is going to need to be dealt with. And so if the tourniquet is going to be inflated for a long time, uh, you're not going to be able to yeah. do this block. 
So you can kind of get around that by doing two. So if it is going to be a little bit more than 45 minutes, you can do two tourniquets. So when you start experiencing tourniquet pain of the first tourniquet, you inflate the second one and then you deflate the first one. So you're kind of changing where the tourniquet is. But with that said, there's only so long you can have an arm without blood supply. So you're always going to be limited by, uh, you're always going to be limited by the amount of time you can keep a tourniquet up. So I think as a rule of thumb, they don't want the tourniquet up to be more than an hour, hour, 15 minutes, just for the safety of the arm and ischemic time of the arm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point that, you know, you got to remember you're not perfusing that arm. Yeah. Right. And that's actually another benefit they say of the beer block is effectively bloodless surgery. So if you can do it, it's actually a nice kind of elegant way to do it, but we don't, it takes a while to do it. And surgeons don't like that when you sit there, it, it takes a good 15, 20 minutes for the arm to go numb. And uh, it's for a short procedure. So we've really gotten away from it. Now we pretty much do sedation and just local, but uh, so which of the, and the other question they're asking and like how you do the block and mechanisms of the block is uh, about what drugs you use. So which of the following is true regarding intravenous regional anesthesia, also known as a beer block? A, it's useful for post-operative pain and extremity surgery. B, it can be used for extremity surgeries lasting two to three hours. C, bupivacaine is the drug of choice for prolonged blocks. D, lidocaine is most commonly used. And so, you know, this you could think your way through if you didn't know. It's obviously right. not going to help for post-op pain because nope. it's too right. short-acting. Um it is, we, as you already said, you're using it for uh, surgeries that are really ideally less than an hour reliably, not two to three hours. Yeah. Even if you didn't know, you got to think bupivacaine would be a bad choice because you right. really don't want that intravenous. And of right. course, lidocaine is most commonly yeah. used. And it is. And the only time that I, have you, did you use anything other than lidocaine? Both Just times lidocaine. I, yeah, I did lidocaine. Yeah. Uh, so another very similar question is all of the following agents are acceptable for use in a beer block except so A is half percent lidocaine, B is half percent lipivacaine, C is quarter percent lipivacaine, and D is half percent pyrolocaine. And again, you just wouldn't want to use bupivacaine. Right. Because it is the most cardiotoxic. It binds the sodium receptors of the heart very strongly. So if you did have local anesthetic toxicity, it's the hardest to treat. So that's why you don't want to use bupivacaine. So key point two is contraindications. So relative contraindications for this technique include the inability to obtain IV access. If someone has an infection in the arm, someone who has severe peripheral disease because it already has like ischemia to it, uh, sickle cell disease, venous disruption, someone who has an AV fistula or shunt, or convincing history of local anesthetic allergy. So the type of question you might see here, a 65 kilogram man is scheduled for wrist surgery with intravenous regional anesthesia with half percent lidocaine, 50 milliliters. Which of the following statements is true? A, this anesthetic is contraindicated if the patient has sickle cell disease. B, modeling of the skin after injection dictates abandonment of the technique. C, tourniquet discomfort is an indication to inject more local anesthetic. D, bupivacaine half percent could be substituted to prolong anesthesia. E, epinephrine, one to 400,000 should be added to prolong anesthesia. Right. And so as you said, sickle cell disease is a contraindication. You in general do not want to cause ischemia to any limb in someone with sickle cell disease uh, for any period of time. So that makes sense. And the rest. Yeah. And for these blocks, a lot of times we add epinephrine to prolong a block. Not a good idea for this one because you're already having ischemia and uh, you don't want more vasoconstriction once you release the tourniquet. Uh, So key point three is actually complications. So the beer block is very safe technique, but there are potential complications. And I looked it up. There was an ASA closed claims project that looked at beer blocks from 1980 to 1999. So 
almost 20 years of data. And in 20 years, there were only three reported cases of death or brain damage associated with the beer block. So it's really rare, but you can have adverse events. And that includes local anesthetic toxicity, which is the most common one, and things associated with local anesthetic toxicity, such as preictal behavior, seizures, cardiac arrest. Other less severe complications include potential for nerve damage, compartment syndrome, skin discoloration, petechiae, and thrombophlebitis. The most common adverse event encountered is actually tourniquet pain. So like we talked about before, the initial treatment is using a double tourniquet. um, And then if that's not effective, you can do additional sedation. But that's hands down the most common complication. So these are the type of questions you'll see. A tourniquet with dual bladders, so pretty much two tourniquets, is being used for IV regional anesthesia of the upper extremity. At what point in the procedure should the distal tourniquet be inflated? A, during injection of the local anesthetic. B, after the patient complains of tourniquet pain. C, coincident with inflation of the proximal tourniquet. D, after the proximal tourniquet is deflated. E, prior to exsanguination of the limb. Right. And so they're, what they're getting at here is you don't need it at all unless the patient's having tourniquet pain. So that's right. the first exactly. thing. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought you were going <laughs> to me to say more. So yeah, <laughs> and you always, so you're going to inflate the distal one and then, no, other way, inflate the proximal one and then deflate the distal one. Uh, So another question here is, which of the following is the earliest sign of lidocaine toxicity from a high blood level following uh, intravenous regional anesthesia block? A, shivering, B, nystagmus, C, lightheadedness and dizziness, D, tonic-clonic seizure. And we should know that from just when we give uh, lidocaine with induction, patients often will feel lightheaded and dizzy from that 100 milligrams that we tend to give with induction. So that's definitely the first thing. Yeah. So they say lightheaded dizziness and then tinnitus or periorbal perioral numbness, and then that will progress. If it is going to go to toxicity, then you get CNS effects, so visual disturbances, auditory disturbances, then shivering, then muscular twitching, and then the seizure. And in my experience in OB, since we use big volumes of local, if someone says that they have periorbital or oral, not orbital, I guess orbital too, no oral, perioral numbness, or their tongue is numb, that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> that, no. that usually progresses. So if someone tells me my tongue is numb, that never makes me feel good. Uh, that's kind of like not a good sign there. So to review, if you're going to get a question about a beer block, it's most likely about how to perform the block safely and about the tourniquets, how to safely take down a tourniquet and the timing of that. And you may see a question regarding contraindications and then local anesthetic toxicity. Great. All right. Super fun topics today, Jillian. Um, <laughs> Anything to share that you have you picked up anything new since we last spoke uh, that you're reading or watching? Um, so I actually am rereading a book I read in high school and I read it in high school. I remember really liking it. So I picked it up again. It's called The Once and Future King. It's about the Arthurian legends and it's phenomenal. And when I read it in high school, I just really liked the story. And now that I'm rereading it, I actually appreciate it for its message. It's kind of like anti-war, you know, peace. It was written, the first part was written before World War II and the second was written after. And you can really tell the difference in tone of it, but it's a great book and I'm really enjoying rereading it. Nice. That's great. Um, I will say uh, that my wife and I have been avid watchers of Homeland, um, the uh, Showtime show with Claire Danes that is yeah, now- Yeah, my husband um, likes it. It's it's really great, and it just ended. The series finale was uh-huh. um, on Sunday, uh, this past Sunday, and it was amazing. Uh, it was a, one of the best season and series finales 
of any show I've watched. It was really well done. And that's hard to do. It's hard to end. I think it was maybe, I forget if it was five or six or seven seasons. It's yeah. hard to end a show that's been going on that long. Case in point, if you ever watched the TV show Lost, it was the worst ending yeah. ever. Um, it's very hard to <laughs> end a show so. well. Yeah. Uh, I Breaking think they, Bad. Ended, they ended The Office really well. The TV yeah. show The Office. But I agree. Like the I West think that Wing was, didn't end well. Yeah. Kind of a lot of them either are kind of blah or they, they yeah. just are not great. The, uh, Breaking Bad was fantastic. And uh, this Homeland was also really, really good. Yeah. Awesome. So check it out. All right. Thanks for coming back, All Jillian. Right. We'll yep. talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. All right. Another great keyword episode with Dr. Isaac. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website. Leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. Also, you can join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook at the ACRAC Facebook group. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Finally, we have a new option. You can make a donation using Venmo by looking for J Wolpaw. That's J-W-O-L-P-A-W. That's www.venmo.com slash jwolpaw. Thanks so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Kimia Kashkuli is our outgoing media manager and will be staying on to help with some of the outlines for the shows. And April Liu is our incoming media manager. And of course, to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed our original ACRAC music. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. <laughs>